How many of you this week use the aging app? No. You can be honest. Oh, only three. Oh, did you? You did? I never saw you post it. Uh, oh, you didn't? Good. So congratulations. A Russian uh, company now has all your information. Uh, so that's exciting. That's exciting to know. I did not do the aging app. I don't know why I never, like, I can't put a kitty filter on my head. I can't, um, I can't age myself. I just, I can't. The, the creepiest one is the one that takes you and turns you into the opposite gender of what you are. I can't do any of those things. Natalie, I mean, we were just laughing. Those things were so crazy. I can't do any of them. The aging app was especially uh, fantastic to me this week. It was fascinating to me because of the implications of it. And I'm a nerd who I see something catch on in our culture, like Marie Kondo and asking, does this bring me joy or the aging app? And like, I think about what are, what are these things saying about who we are as a people? Maybe that's deeper than you want to get. The aging app to me gives us a snapshot of us outliving or outlasting our fears. That's what it ultimately is doing, right? It's taking a picture of me at 41 and making me look like, what does it do? Is it 30 years or 50 years? Like I took a photo, I found a, I, I found a photo this week of a skeleton in like the thinking pose and I texted it to my friends. I was like, this is me in 30 years. This is, there's no doubt I'm making it to whatever this thing is going. But the aging app, it takes us and it takes a picture of us now and then fast forwards us 30 years. So we have like all of the, if we are living a good life to this point, we sort of get this snapshot of us without all the crap that can come with aging and the scary uncertainty that comes with going into the future 30 years. So it's this picture of us outlasting our fears of aging and wrinkles and baldness and death and sadness and loneliness and failure and the fears of global warming and climate change or the fears of nuclear war or the fears of what could happen with the Trump presidency or the fears, if you uh, are a fan of Trump, of what could happen if the squad gains control of the whole world or of, um, of economic meltdown. Like the aging app lets us see a future that we prefer. It was even amazing to me this week to see my friends who are 40 and 50 who in the photo are 80, but their kids who are teenagers and children are still the same age. Isn't that what a lot of us want? We want our kids to stay innocent and nice and little and young and out of trouble while we age gracefully with a few wrinkles and a little bit of baldness, but everything kind of just looks okay. Like the world can be a scary place. The future can be really scary. Like if we think about what is ahead for your family in the months to come, it can be a little frightening. So what, let me just ask, what causes you fear? What makes you scared? Does the future make you scared? And what are we even supposed to do with fear? And, uh, and I'm seeing the hypochondriacs in the room laugh, like should Christians even have fears? Like to be afraid, is there something unchristian about even feeling Fear. I mean, you guys, Simon and most, you guys are doing something that is really scary. And is that sort of anti-Christian or sinful to even have fears? And I'm thankful the Bible speaks to this really clearly. Let me just give you one verse. If you'll look in 1 John chapter 4, if you, if you grab the large print Bible, it's page 1125. If you grab the small print Bible and could be an American uh, pilot, uh, it's page 592 if you have perfect vision. Uh, so large print 1125, small print 592, 1 John chapter 4. Let me just read you 
verse uh, 18. Now, this is written by John. He's one of the 12 disciples. Uh, and John, uh, at this point in writing, is old. And he's outlived most of the other disciples. In fact, a lot of the disciples have been killed for their faith. And so they're dead. And, uh, and John's writing a letter to some churches in the Roman Empire. And he's talking about the way of love. And how Christians ultimately ought to be, and churches ought to be people and places of love. And so, in 1 John 4, 18, it says this. It says, now there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so the first, like, the big idea today, and this might even be a slide if you want. Yep, here it is. Fear shouldn't be denied or minimized or controlled. But fear should be confronted by love. This is the New Testament, the biblical way, God's way, that we would handle fear in our life. Fear shouldn't be denied, minimized, or controlled, but confronted in love. Now let me just go through the, uh, this verse sort of word by word and uh, share a couple of things with you that are kind of neat. Uh, the idea of fear uh, is the Greek word for phobia. It's the word anxiety. How many people in our church struggle with anxiety? I know the answer. Uh, I don't know the exact answer, but it's more than one. Like, so if you struggle with anxiety, trust me, you are not alone. Like, uh, so he starts with, there is no phobia. There is no anxiety. Now, let me just uh, take a quick parenthesis in the world we live in and say, I'm not um, denying or minimizing or putting down like people who struggle with sincere anxiety like I understand the culture we live in this is much more than just read a bible verse and quote it back to yourself Uh, some of these things are spiritual struggles some of them are emotional and chemical and we need to deal with our anxieties and our fears in a holistic way Um, so don't hear me like if you sincerely struggle with anxiety like some people that I dearly love do know that I'm not saying oh well if you just believe God more everything would be okay it's much more complicated than that. So I'm not trying to minimize it. Sometimes, like, I don't struggle chemically or physiologically with anxiety. I just struggle spiritually with anxiety and fear at times. Like, sometimes I just forget to believe who God is and what he has said. And so uh, that's what we're talking about today. I don't want to deny or minimize real emotional anxiety that people struggle with in any way. So please don't hear that. Close parentheses. Let's move forward. Now, there's no fear in love. That word love is not like romantic love. Oh, and this is not even friend love. Uh, And it's not sexual love. It's it's cross love. There is no fear in cross love. There's no fear in agape is the biblical word for it. That word just means to lay down your life for someone else. In other words, when fear and cross love, the love of Jesus meet, cross love Wins. It says there's no fear in love, but perfect cross love. Now, this word perfect in the, in the Bible and the New Testament is one of my favorite words. If you can picture a piece of fruit on a tree, my grandparents lived in Peach County, Georgia, and every year we would watch those peaches come to full maturity. And boy, you knew when you would grab it, if it was just soft, you knew you could pull it and eat it. And man, like it was a mature, there's nothing worse than an unripened piece of fruit. There's nothing grosser than an unripened banana. If you've never had a totally unripened peach, trust me, it's gross. You don't want any part of it. Listen, perfect love, when the Bible talks about perfect love, it says a mature, a ripe, a ripened cross love casts out fear. 
There is no anxiety in cross love, but ripened, mature cross love casts out, it evicts. Are any of you a fan of the movie The Holiday? A couple of you, a couple of the guys are nodding your head, but you won't raise your hand. I get it. Hey, I see you back there. I saw that hand, Annie. Big fan. I can't remember Kate, Kate Winslet. I can't remember her character's name. I remember the bad guy. He's always a bad guy. His name's Jasper in the movie. He's always a bad guy. And he's been like having her on this emotional yo-yo for years. And to get away from him, she's living in London. She comes uh, for a week to Los Angeles, and she's going to take a holiday, right? And then he, messing with her emotions, comes... Uh, to Los Angeles and pops in on her. And you can see this emotional trauma that this man has caused this woman creeping back in. And the greatest moment in the movie is when, I can't remember her name in the movie, but she finally gets gumption. And that's what the whole thing's about, this old screenwriter teaching her that Hollywood leading ladies get gumption. And she gets some gumption, and the guy comes, and he's hanging out in her living room, and she gets gumption, and she throws him out. Do you remember that part in the movie? And, like, you just want to cheer for her. You're like, yes, you finally got control of your own life, your own story. That, like, that idea of evicting him, that's what the Bible says cross love does to fear. Perfect, mature love evicts anxiety it evicts anxiety because it goes on it says for fear anxiety has to do with punishment and punishment or penalties or chastisement uh, that's not how the gospel allows us to operate see because of the gospel because jesus died when jesus died on the cross he didn't just do something so we would have jewelry and bad art for the next couple thousand years like in doing that he took all of our punishment Uh, on his shoulders, on the cross. And so sin deserved death, but Jesus at the cross took our punishment. Sin demanded blood. And Jesus shed all of his blood and shouldered our punishment. So God took out all of his wrath on Jesus at the cross. So when you sin or you're fearful, if there's anything in you that thinks, oh, God's mad at me. Like if I said a little swear word, God might be like, oh, you're only human. But if I use the F word at my boss, well, man, then God's really going to be mad. Or, you know, and and we create all these little scales for how good or bad and when God's going to be mad. If we, listen, God poured out all of his wrath for everything we ever did, do, or will do on Jesus at the cross. He, all of his wrath went out on Jesus. So God only operates toward you and I in love. He only operates toward you and me out of a sense of love. If we are part of his family, he operates in love toward us, towards Christ's followers. Now, let me give you two sort of theological caveats, if you will. One, non-Christians are not yet out from under God's just sentence on our lives. And that's why we start new churches, to share the good news, the gospel, so that people would come out from under God's wrath and the anxiety that we should rightly feel toward it and come into his loving family of forgiveness and grace. Second, and, uh, second thing, theological caveat. A Christ follower who is fearful, and, and this took me, a, like, I'll be honest, this landed me in Christian counselors on the couch twice in my life, okay? A Christian, a Christ follower who thinks, who is fearful of God's punishment is essentially saying that Jesus' death wasn't enough to pay for my sins. 
If you want to hang on to fear and condemnation of God judging you, then what you are saying by default is that Jesus' death was enough to pay for Mark's sins or Jamie's sins or Barb's sins, but not enough to pay for my sins. So I think God's coming for me, therefore I need to pay penance or make amends or whatever, and we're ultimately calling God liars. God, I know your Bible says you forgive me and you're done with wrath, but I can't believe that. So I'm going to be afraid that you're coming after me. You're a liar, God. You're a liar. It's a denial of grace and the gospel. Our response to grace is to humbly and gratefully receive it and live as free people. That's the gospel. We don't have to be afraid. Fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears, anyone who has phobias spiritually, has not yet been perfected, made mature, ripened, in perfect love has not been perfected by cross love yet. Here's my translation. There's no anxiety in the face of cross love, but mature cross love evicts anxiety because anxiety has to do with punishment. And anyone who has spiritual phobias has not been fully ripened yet by cross love. So we have four options when it comes to fear. I put them up here. Option one, we can deny, uh, we can deny them. But it's silly to deny that we have fears. I think one of the core tenets of Buddhism is we try to just emotionally disconnect. And so we would say our fears aren't real and we can just get into this sort of perfect state of enlightenment and it's like those things go away. That's irrational. Fear is real. We can deny it all day long. But the world can be a scary place. The world can be a frightening place. Number two, second option, we can minimize it. We can put on what my granddad used to call your big boy pants. Did any of you have family members who said, now it's time for you to put on your big boy pants? I don't know what they would have said had I been their granddaughter. But he would tell me, now um, it's time to put on your big boy pants. Uh, and in that situation, we're not actually minimizing the fear. We're trying, to, we're trying to make ourselves feel bigger. Problem is, we are what we are. And our fears are what we are. So as much as we try to minimize them and try to maximize ourselves, we still know they're there. The third thing we can try to do is we can try to control our fears. We can try to control them. That feels a bit like trying to like, control sand or control water and hold something in your hand that you can sort of hang on to for a minute, but just leaks. When I try to control my fears, they tend to leak away from me. And so the fourth option, the gospel option, is this. We can square it with love and truth. We can square it with love and truth. We can square it with perfect love. Now, how do we do that? <clears throat> Let me give you a formula. I think this is the next slide, if you'll check, Scott. I'm not sure. Yes. Here's a formula I want to give you when you're dealing with fear. Facts and then an arrow to faith and then an arrow to feelings. This is the way that the, when we face fear, this is the direction we ought to go. We need to start with what is factually true from our life experience and from what Scripture says and what God says to be true. And then we interpret those, we, we then bring those facts to bear on our faith. Now faith is what we believe even without seeing. And we live in a Western culture that just loves literal things. And we don't like mysteries and we don't like what is unseen, except when it comes to UFOs for some reason. And we love the idea of those. Like, we're ready to storm Area 51 as a culture right now uh, because we believe in UFOs, but everything else that we can't see, we totally struggle with. So listen, our faith, uh, 
our, our faith doesn't interpret the facts. The facts interpret our faith. They come to bear this way. And then our feelings have to move through the lens of what we believe. Now, often we do the opposite. We, what we feel and what we fear ends up controlling us to a point where we act religiously. We place faith in a feeling. And we put our facts, uh, putting facts and truths last reinterpreting them. I can't tell you how many times a millennial has told me, hey man, perception's reality. That's just not true. Reality is reality. How I perceive it is getting the equation backwards. My feelings, my perceptions don't interpret the facts. The facts ought to interpret my feelings with faith serving as the middleman. I had a really good friend when we lived in South Carolina and he did not feel love for his wife. And he called me one day and was ready to divorce her. I never will forget, we met at Panera Bread. I knew he was getting ready to leave her. And he had had a traumatic experience in a previous marriage that caused him to mess up his feeler. And so despite the fact that he truly believed Jesus in the gospel, he was ready to bolt on the marriage because he didn't feel like it was going to make it. And he was going home to basically tell her he was leaving and she... Uh, and she was ready to tap out too, but she accidentally got pregnant. And so he said, I can't leave. You know, he's in his mid-30s, so I can't leave her. She's having my baby. And so in that moment, that the trauma of finding out this woman he was about to divorce caused him to push, push pause. And in that second, outside Panera Bread in August, we walked through this equation. What are the facts? Has she cheated on you? No. Has there been any infidelity? No. What does the Bible say about divorce? We walk through that. What does your marriage say to the world about the gospel? We walk through that. Do you believe that to be true, even though it's not what you feel? Yes, I believe it, even though it's not what I feel. Okay, then we've got to let your feelings be, inter be, the, be interpreted by your faith and not let your faith have to live in the wake of your feelings. And now, their daughter is five, they're happily married, and they're making it. They don't have a perfect marriage. They've been in counseling for like five years. But they have a functioning marriage that's a witness to the gospel and not to just being controlled by their feelings. So this idea of facts, then faith, then feelings will often force our fears to flee. When you're afraid... Say, okay, what, does, what are the facts about God? Where have I seen God move in my life before? And then say, what do I believe? And then let your feelings go from there. The facts are that God loves us perfectly, that Jesus took our punishment, and that I see perfect love at the cross. My faith says, my faith is my response to God's love, and my faith is love. Love is faith enacted. And then ultimately, my feelings of fear, when I square them with the facts and with what I believe, a lot of times my fears will run away under the authority of Jesus. Second thing I want you to see as an implication of this verse is that God will allow, God, if you go to the next one, God will allow, and I put in parentheses, put, and we're not going to get into the sort of theological uh, tightrope here, but... We can have a talk later about does God allow hard times in our life or does God put hard times in our life? And I think the answer is yes. Um, so God will allow or 
put situations in your life and my life that will challenge us and provoke fear. If we don't fear, we're not human. Jesus was even like troubled unto death at times, like sweating blood because he was so not fearful, but just so anxious about what was coming ahead when he was thinking about the cross. And so God will allow situations that challenge us and even provoke fear. Vaskin's been going through a crazy health situation. It feels like for a year, but it's probably only been about four or five months, maybe. And he said a month ago, he said, even if this situation never gets better, I trust God and know that he has a good plan for my life. Whew. That situation challenged and even provoked fear, but it caused his faith to grow in a way that I doubt it would have grown on its own, not that quickly at least. Listen, there are myths that God can't use scared people. There, there are myths. There's a myth that God would never want us to be uncomfortable Those are only myths. Those are not rooted in the Bible. Uh, The truth is God moves in and through our weakness, not our strength. God moves in and through our weakness. When we are fearful or when we are challenged or when we are provoked at that place of our weakness, as Simon was sharing, God can then be strong and nobody gets at the end of it to sort of flex their muscle and say, well, look what we did. Look at this. It's No, look what God did. Despite our weakness. The third implication, if you'll go to this one, Scott. Love, not fear. Love is a Christian's and a church's motivation. It's our ethic. It's our goal. It's our playbook. It's our operating system. And it's our superpower. Love's our superpower. David said that last week. It's the greatest quote. I want to make that into a t-shirt. David Butler said, for the church, for Christians, love is the superpower. How does love get perfected? In verses 16, 17, and 19, I won't read them in the interest of time, but 16, 17, and 19, it says that love is perfected in us as we abide in who God is. Abiding is how we remember that we are loved. I am loved comes from abiding, and abiding in perfect love allows us to say I am loved. And then the other one, it says this in verse 11 and 12. The other way that God perfects love in us is by loving other people. When we love others, um, God's love is perfected. See, it's it's easy to sit in a closet and just read the Bible and pray and not have to deal with humans. Right? Wouldn't that be nice? All the introverts just smiled. You're like, oh, that sounds fantastic. Yes. If the closet is air conditioned, I will hide out and read the Bible and love God. Anybody can do that. But God calls us to love people. Love is perfected not in how we love him vertically, but how we love others horizontally. How we love people says much more about how we love God than just how we love God. I can sit and read the Bible all day long. Give me an air-conditioned room and a Bible, I'll read that thing cover to cover in a couple of months. It's loving people that's the hard part. Loving people is where love is perfected. I love Harry Potter. I love the Harry Potter movies. At the end of all the books and all the movies, uh, Harry, essentially almost every one of them, has this debriefing session with Dumbledore, right? Where he's he's in the office and they're talking or in the hospital room or he's somewhere and they're debriefing what they just experienced. And Harry always said, or, uh, well, what, brought, what allowed me to be courageous or what allowed me to defeat evil or what allowed me to free my friends or what saved my life and what does Dumbledore say at the end of almost every one? 
It was love. It was love, Harry. It was love that caused your mom to lay down her life for you. It was love that broke the curse. It was love that killed the serpent. It was love. It's always love. Those books get it so right. It was love. What can evict and dispel fear in your life? It's love. It's mature, cross love. What can restore a broken marriage like my friend? It's love. It's love. What can return your joy if you feel like you're walking around a spiritual zombie and, man, I just want to feel love for Jesus like I felt love for Jesus when I first became a follower? It's love. What can save a soul? It's love. What can break addiction? It's love. What can end poverty in this neighborhood and this gross financial inequity? It's love. What can bring our neighborhood together around the gospel? It's love. What can give us relentless, tremendous courage? It's love. It's love. It's cross love. There is no fear in mature love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Let me pray for us.